Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to 3 John, the third epistle of John. And by the fact that we have gotten to the third epistle of John, ought to communicate quite clearly to you that we are drawing to a near close of our study through the epistles of John. We've been on that journey now for quite a few weeks. Uh, I don't know, 18 more weeks than something along that. And now we come to the third John this morning and the Lord willing, we will come back to it next week and that will conclude our study through the epistles of John. It's worth noting that third John is actually the shortest book in the New Testament. And now some of you, if you maybe have a second John on the opposing page that you're looking at, you're going, but wait a minute, second John's got fewer verses than third John does. And you're right. It does have fewer verses, but third John has fewer words. And so by definition, it is the shortest book in the New Testament, followed right behind by 2 John. And the only reason I bring that up is because both of those epistles being so brief, they're often, un, they're often unnoticed. They kind of go by and they're overlooked. A lot of folks don't pay a lot of attention to them. But I think that's unfortunate because I believe both letters, though they are brief, they, they have a wealth of knowledge and insight that they provide to students of the Bible. And really, that's what we desire to be here. We are we are believers. We are a family of believers who come together, who recognize ourselves to be disciples. And as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to be students of His Word. And we want to be able to study His Word and apply the truths of His Word to our hearts. And so we want to be able to do that. And let's do that this morning. We want to be able to read God's Word together and apply its truths to our hearts. So if you've got your Bibles open there to 3 John, let's begin reading there and hear what the John, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, says to us, The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prosper. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive or support such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, praying around against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish, who wish to putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and, and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it teaches us. I thank you for how it brings us into a greater understanding of our responsibilities as believers in Christ. Now, I pray that that would be what would accomplish, be accomplished here today, that by your Holy Spirit you would bring us into a greater knowledge and a greater conviction. And that, Father, that through this, that you might be glorified in the name of your Son, Jesus, would be lifted up, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. No doubt as I read this third letter of John, you noticed there were quite a few similarities to what we read in 2 John. For example, he, he begins the same way that he began this second letter, by identifying himself as the elder. Now, we know that John was an aging man by this point in his life, particularly by first century standards. He had lived a very long life, and he was at this point, and so he identifies himself as the elder. What's also interesting is how he closes the letter of 3 John. He closes it in a very similar way that, than the way he closed 2 John. If you notice that in, in 2 John chapter, excuse me, in, in verse 12, John writes this, he says, Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to, see, come to you and speak face to face. Well, that's very similar to the way he closed 3 John. There he wrote, I had many things to write, but I do not wish to, do, to you, write to you in pen, pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. So these letters are similar in that John begins them and sort of concludes them in a very similar fashion. But you'll also notice that he talks about similar things in third John as he did the second back when we were beginning our study of second John I, I, I noted to you then that, that that there John was very interested in the issue of the truth as a matter of fact he he uses the word truth five times in the first four verses of second John but I hope you noticed that when we were reading third John he he mentions the word truth there four times in the first eight verses truth was a very important issue as it pertained to John particularly in what he wrote but it wasn't just the issue of truth but it was also the truth working in love. Love is also a major issue in these epistles, as we well know from our study in 1 John. But as we got here, not only does, does, does John tell us about truth and, 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 and our commitment to it, working itself out through love in, in 2 John, but then you notice that the commitment of truth there in 3 John is balanced also by a commendation of this man named Gaius. A man named Gaius who, who exhibited love toward people of missionaries and people who had been sent out from the church. So there's a lot of similarities between 3 John and 2 John, but lest we think they're identical in structure and in their message, they're not. In fact, there are some striking differences between them. For example, in 2 John, John calls no one by name. You remember he, he addressed the church there, and he addressed the church in a very... Uh, honorary way, metaphorical way, he says he writes to the elect lady and her children. He calls no one by their name, and yet when we get to 3 John, we see that he names three different people in it, actually. The letter is addressed to a man named Gaius, whom we recognize that John had a very dear and personal relationship with. As a matter of fact, John, John talks about him in a very heartfelt way. There's also the man Diotrephes, who is a scoundrel that we'll learn more about, Lord willing, next week, and how he opposed the Apostle John and the things that John did. But he is also named. And then there's the final guy who's named there. His name is Demetrius, who no doubt was probably an emissary from John, who, who maybe even had this letter with him and was taking it to Gaius. And he was, he was an emissary from that church, and so he is spoken well of. But those three names are mentioned in 3 John. You don't get any personal names in 2 John. 
But lest we think that because 3 John is a personal letter written to an individual, well, we can just discard it and think to ourselves, well, it's not worth our time to study it and to, and to learn from it. Let me quote to you what J. Gresham Machen has said with regard to 3 John. He says, like all books of the New Testament, 3 John has a message for the entire church. The devout reader rises from the perusal of it with a more steadfast devotion to the truth and a warmer glow of Christian love. Now, brothers and sisters, would that not be what's, what all study of the Scriptures should do in us? That it should produce within us a, a more steadfast confidence and, 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 and complete sticking with what the truth of the Scriptures teach and that also would produce within us a glow of the warmth of love for other believers? That's what the study of the Scriptures ought to be. And no doubt it's exactly what John desired to take place when his letter was read as well. It is that that commitment to truth and also that desire for the love that brings us, though, to the real distinction between 2nd and 3rd John. You see, 2nd John, if you'll recall with me last week, really helped us be able to map out who was, in, who was actually part of the apostolic truth. The whole message of 2nd John was to give us the ability to, to understand, based upon what someone taught, did they, were they teaching true apostolic truth with regard to who Jesus Christ is? Because John says there that they had to come proclaiming that concerning Jesus Christ that He came in the flesh. And what we learned last week was is that our understanding of truth with regard to Jesus Christ rests completely on the fact that He is God incarnate that He was the co-equal, co-eternal Son of God who came in the flesh in order to be fully God and fully man and thereby be the only way by which mankind can have the enmity that exists between them and God fixed. Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no man comes to the Father but through Him. That is apostolic truth concerning Jesus Christ. And 2 John tells us that if someone comes and they do not proclaim that truth, then we're not to receive them. We're not to even greet them. We're not to give them a place. We're not to aid and abet them. It does not mean that we need to be rude to them. It does not mean that we need to not show kindness and, and, and mercy as we would to any human being, but we are in no way to help them propagate their message that goes against what the Scriptures teach because our concern for men's souls and our concern for the glory of Christ will trump anything and everything that comes against that. That's what 2 John teaches us. Lest we think that tangible displays of love have become unimportant to John, 3 John brings that to our attention. In fact, it will correct that notion. A superficial reading of 3 John, and if you read... 3 John right behind 2 John, you might think that John is contradicting himself. I mean, after all, he says in 2 John that some so-called missionaries, we are with, to withhold fellowship and, and, and withhold hospitality from them. But then in 3 John, we read that he castigates and he rebukes this man named Diotrephes because he does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. At the same time, in 3 John, he commends this man named Gaius for being generous in his hospitality and for showing love to those who came bearing the truth. So if we look at those two letters, we realize that 2 John teaches us that we must withhold hospitality from some. 3 John tells us that we are to extend hospitality to others. As John Stott has written, 
The two letters must then be read together if we are to gain a balanced understanding of the duties and limits of Christian hospitality. What's the deciding factor? What is it that determines whether we withhold fellowship and we withhold hospitality or whether we extend hospitality? Well, it's simply this. It is with regard to the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Those who teach error and do not demonstrate a commitment to the truth are to be turned away lest we tacitly give our approval to their false and deadly message. On the other hand, those who teach the truth concerning Christ and who walk in that truth, they are to be received and supported by the church. What these two letters teach us is that as believers, we are to contend for the truth. We are to fight for the truth, which in some cases will mean that we guard ourselves against those who teach falsely. That's 2 John. But in other cases, it means that we will throw our full weight of support behind those who are committed to that truth. That's 3 John. And it's the latter case that we come to this morning as we see that that is really a description of the man Gaius to whom John writes. He is a man who evidently threw his full weight of support behind those who were committed to the truth. Now, we know very little about Gaius. Matter of fact, outside of this letter of 3 John, we don't know anything about the man. There have been many throughout the centuries who've tried to pinpoint who exactly he was. He was this Gaius here, he was that Gaius there. Gaius, you might be interested in knowing, was a Roman name that was as popular and common as the name Jim or John or Bill is today. It, there were many, many people named Gaius in the first century world. We don't know who this Gaius was. Some have said that he was a leader in the church, but there's no title given to him here for us to be able to, to know for sure that that was the case. It's very likely that Gaius was simply a lay member of a small local church body near the city of Ephesus. But what we do learn about Gaius from this letter tells us that he was a man who had a tremendous testimony and he was a man who made a great impact for the cause of Christ. And I want you to notice that John doesn't just simply call him Gaius. You know, when you write a letter to someone, I don't know if anybody writes letters anymore. You know, I don't think we do. I think we, we email or we text. I don't even think we email. I think we text now. That's what we do. But whenever you used to write a letter, you know, when you start a letter out, you know, John, this is Craig, and I'm writing. Well, you know, if you started at the, to my dear friend John, then that, mean, that, adds, that adds a little more weight to it. That's exactly what John does here. He says to Gaius, he says, to my, to my beloved Gaius, to my dear friend Gaius. And he doesn't just say it once. He says it three more times throughout the letter. He calls him beloved, his dear friend. But that's not all. He doesn't just do that. He says, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in truth. He adds that phrase. In other words, what he wants us to know is that his connection to Gaius and, and wanted Gaius to know it was not just some sentimental love that he had for him. It was, it was rooted in the truth. It was rooted in the fact that the two of them had something in common with one another. And what they had in common with one another was the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to know is what connects you and me when we say we love one another is not sentimentality. 
Though we do hope sentimentality occurs and comes, what connects us as brothers and sisters in Christ is that we are connected by the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has saved us and has come to be our Lord and Master. And as a result, we are part of His family. That's why we call ourselves a church family. And John loved Gaius in this way. They were brothers in Christ. And listen, he loved him so much, he says, listen, I want you to do well in life. I want you to prosper. I hope you prosper in your, in your health. I want you to prosper in what you do, the decisions that you make in life, the, the way that things happen to you above, and all those things. I want you to prosper just as you prosper in your spirit. He recognized Gaius to be a man of spiritual wealth. He wanted to see him to be healthy and wealthy in other ways. So Gaius was a man that John loved. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is a descriptive phrase that John uses down in verse 8. It's, there's a phrase in verse 8 that I believe fits what we learn of Gaius in this passage. And I believe it is a phrase that John says should ultimately be descriptive of uh, the way that believers, all of us, are to be described as well. Verse 8, John commends supporting those who had been sent out, bearing the name of Christ, and for his sake, in order that, listen, we may become fellow workers for the truth. According to this description, we as believers ought to aspire and have said about us that we are fellow workers for the truth. The word in Greek is the word sunergoi, which literally means fellow worker or co-workers. I believe the NIV unfortunately hides the noun in its translation by, by translating it that, that, you know, that we may work together for the truth. That is what John is desiring, but the noun is important. The noun is sunergoi. It means, it means that it's where we get our word synergy from. When we talk about synergy, we talk about people entering into synergistic relationships. Those relationships are ones in which when the individuals participate, more is accomplished by them pooling their energies and their resources together than if they had separated and just done things on their own. Synergy means that more is accomplished by working together than when people just stay as individuals. And so consequently, what John is saying here, he is saying that we should be fellow workers for the truth. We need to be believers who are committed to the truth of the gospel by supporting and, and cooperating with one another who share in that same commitment. And so based upon what John writes here in this brief letter, what we recognize is that Gaius was a tremendous example from which we ought to learn some things. He was a synergos. He was a fellow worker. He was a co-worker for the sake of the truth. And it's caused me to ask a question this morning that I printed for you in your text. This is the question that I want us to bear in mind as we look at Gaius' life, something that I think we need to answer. The, 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 the question that has come to my mind that I want to present to you this morning is this. What are the essential characteristics and practices of fellow workers for the truth of the gospel? What are the essential characteristics and practices of fellow workers for the truth of the gospel? Well, the first one that I think that our text shows us this morning is this. There is a committed faithfulness to walk in the truth. A committed faithfulness to walk in the truth. Notice that, that John tells Gaius in verses 3 and 4 that his great joy occurred when news came to him testifying that Gaius was walking in the truth, 
And John says that brethren came and testified of that truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Now, from what John writes and what we've seen through John in the past, we know what that means is he was not just commending Gaius for having knowledge. He didn't just commend him because you've learned things about the Scriptures and about Jesus that, that are necessary. He was talking about the fact that that knowledge had translated into actions and into deeds. And so consequently, he was walking in the truth. He was moving forward in his life with that knowledge and with that information impacting the way that his feet began to live and the way he began to work and the way he began to love. Notice also this. There's something else that we need to recognize. Our English translations might kind of hide this from us, but, but when the Greek is written here in verse 3, it says that John's great joy came when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in us. What might not be very familiar or very immediately available for our understanding, but what the Greek readily translates is that this was a multiple time events that had happened. Many people had come through the area in which Gaius had lived and they had come back to the church where John was and had given testimony again and again and again with regard to Gaius and to, with regard to what he had done on their behalf. In other words, Gaius was not a one-hit wonder. He was not someone who did something one time and said, okay, I've done it, now I don't have to do it again. No, it was a pattern of life for him that he continued to live out. Brothers and sisters, the same thing should be said of us. If you and I are going to be fellow workers for the truth of the gospel, if that is what we aspire to be as the scriptures say we should, then we must also aspire to evidence in our lives a committed faithfulness to walk in the truth. Look at, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do. In other words, Gaius was trustworthy. He was dependable. He could be counted on. I like the way that Greg Allen has put it. He says, if he said he was going to meet a need, he met it. If he said he would pray for someone, he prayed for them. If he said he would give of his time to do what was needed, he gave it without reservation. He could be counted on to follow through on what he said he would do in supporting the work of the brethren. So that's the first essential quality. The first essential characteristic of a fellow worker for the truth. It is a committed faithfulness to walk in the truth. Notice the second one. The second essential characteristic is this. It's a love for others who are committed to the truth. A love for others who are committed to the truth. We've already noted how commitment, a commitment to the truth will evidence itself in love, but notice that in verse 6, John refers once again to the repeated witness and testimony concerning Gaius. As I mentioned, there were many who had traveled through the area where Gaius lived, and no doubt there were many, both those who he knew and those who were strangers to him, who when they got back to the church that had sent them, where John would have been, they came before the assembly and gave testimony to the fact that had it not been for Gaius, had it not been for him providing them the, the needed resources, had it not been for him opening his home to them, had it not been for the food and for the care that he had provided them and for the money that he had given them as they left, then they would have had no success whatsoever in their journey. And as I said, not all of these folks were people who were known to him. Some of them evidently, because of the word strangers there, were people whom he did not know. 
And so he didn't just hold all of his resources to give to those with whom he had a relationship. No, he was willing to share with those who he had in common with the truth concerning Jesus Christ. It did not matter what their ethnicity was. It did not matter what their background was. It did not matter what other superficial things might have separated them. What counted was that they were brothers and sisters in Christ united together around the truth of the gospel concerning Jesus. And as a result, he was generous in his love and his support. Brothers and sisters, that is what a fellow worker in the truth of the gospel entails. It demands a committed faithfulness, not only to walk in the truth personally, but it requires a love for others who are committed to the truth as well. And then I believe it's a byproduct of that love that John highlights in the third answer that I have printed for you this morning that answers this question. What are the essential characteristics and practices of a fellow worker of the truth? The third point on your outline is this. It's a hospitable spirit shown toward fellow believers. A hospitable spirit shown toward fellow believers. Listen, the whole tenor of 3 John is really a commendation of Gaius set in the context of a stinging rebuke of a man named Diotrephes. He evidently was just a ne'er-do-well scoundrel. We're going to get back to him next week. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being able to figure out what his problem was. I may not ever figure it out, but I'm looking forward to trying. But in light of that, notice he says, he says this guy, he doesn't receive the brethren when I send them. He refuses to receive them. And not only that, but he tells the people that he's got, he exercises authority over, you better not receive them either. John's like, Gaius, thank you for what you do. Thank you that, that, that you have helped them. Remember what, what the first century world was like. They didn't have hotels and motels on every corner. They didn't have fast food restaurants. They didn't have laundromats to go and do that with. When someone came to town, they needed those who were there, who were their brothers and sisters, to take them in and to care for them and provide protection for them. And Gaius was one who stood up, even in the face of opposition, and says, if you are, if you are rooted in the truth and you believe the truth concerning Jesus, you come to me and I will take care of you. He is highlighted. He is commended because of his attitude. So what are we to make of all that? Because we don't live in the first century world. We live in the, the 21st century where we have all of these luxuries and all these things available to us. We're not necessarily known for our hospitality in the 21st century. A majority of us drive to our homes and we press a button that opens our garage door and we drive into our garage and we press another button that closes our garage door and then we go and deadbolt the front door and we stay closed and pinned up and locked up in our houses. We don't really know a lot about what hospitality was like, especially in the first century world. How does this apply to us? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. As Christ's followers, our faith, is based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ and the expression of our faith is rooted in genuine relationships with others. Therefore, if we truly desire to be fellow workers in the truth of the gospel, we must re-examine our commitment to hospitality. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. He said that in the day of judgment, He will say to the righteous, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Do you want a good explanation and definition of hospitality? That's it. And what he says is that the righteous will look at him and say, when did we do this thing for you, Jesus? And he says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. 
In other words, showing hospitality to our brothers and sisters in Christ is a way for us to show hospitality to Christ Himself. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and listen, given to hospitality. It makes the list. In 1 Timothy, when, when the Apostle Paul is listing out all of the qualifications for the overseer of a church, he lists many different things. But you know what one of the things is? He needs to be hospitable. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4-8, through 8, he writes, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And then let's not forget what the writer of Hebrews says. In chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, he says, Let brotherly love continue. And do not forget to entertain strangers. Why? For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be fellow workers in the truth, if we are going to engage in synergistic relationships that allow us to accomplish more together than we would ever accomplish alone, then we must display a committed faithfulness to walk in the truth. We must constantly fan the flame of love for others who are also committed to the truth, and we must exercise a hospitable spirit shown toward fellow believers. And then fourthly, notice this. We must sense a calling to support and provide for the needs of those God calls to go. We must sense a calling to support and provide for the needs of those God calls to go. Much of everything that John has said to Gaius in this letter thus far really has been about things that Gaius did in the past. He's commending him about things that he had already done. But if you'll notice down in verse 6, John switches the focus and he starts talking about things that are to happen in the future. He says, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God you will do well. Really, this is a request from John to Gaius. Listen, please continue to do what you're doing. Continue to send them out. John Stott has written it this way. He says, these missionaries were to be so refreshed and provided for, no doubt with supplies of food and money, as to be sent forward on the next stage of their journey as befits God's service. I. Howard Marshall wrote it this way. He said, sending missionaries on their way involved providing for their journey, supplying them with food and money to pay for their expenses, washing their clothes, and generally helping them to travel as comfortably as possible. Now John's appeal to Gaius rested on the fact that according to verse 7, these missionaries were wholly dependent upon God's people for their support. They were sent out on a missionary journey into the, the pagan world. Really, that's the best way to understand that word Gentiles there. It wasn't just those who were not Jews. It was those who were pagans. And when they were sent out into that world to carry the good news of Jesus Christ, guess who did not support them? The pagans. They didn't go out asking for them for their money. Why? Because what took place was is that the believers 
Those who were committed to the truth of the gospel, they shouldered the load. And for those who were sent to go, those who stayed behind supported them in their mission and their endeavor. Why is that the case? Well, because they were on the same team. They served the same master. Notice also that they didn't take money from elsewhere. So consequently, they had, this was their only means of support. So when John is, is, is encouraging Gaius here, what he's letting us know is the reason for his encouragement is because they were all on the same team, committed to the same truth, and that the missionaries had no other means of support except for the church. Let me quote I. Howard Marshall once more. He writes, In view of the missionaries' resolve to act as ambassadors for the name and to refrain from seeking support from pagans, all Christians stand under an obligation to help them as sharers in the truth themselves. They must prove to be fellow workers in practice. Alistair Begg, he states it this way, All are not required to go, but all are required to give. All are not required to preach, but all are required to provide. Though we do not all go when we stay behind, we are to commit to support those who do go. So brothers and sisters, that is what John commends Gaius for having done and what he encourages him to continue to do. And if we are going to become fellow workers for the truth of the gospel in our lives, it is what we also must practice. If we are going to be sunergoi, if we're going to be synergistic, relationship-driven people of the family of God who work together for the truth, we have to employ these same things into our lives. The question that we must ask ourselves is this. How are we doing? As you evaluate your own life, how do you measure up to the example that we see in Gaius? Are you committed to faithfully and dependably walking in the truth? Do you truly love others? Who are committed to that truth? Are you generous and hospitable with what God has blessed you with? Are you open-hearted, open-handed, open-homed to those who, like you, name the name of Christ and go forth in His name? Do you accept the calling that God has placed upon you to provide support to those whom He has called to go? You see, brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber begins to meet the road in our lives. And it leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. As believers, we have the responsibility and the duty to engage in synergistic relationships with other brothers and sisters committed to advancing the truth of the gospel and bringing glory to the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we are required and duty-bound to do. And the overarching message of the book of First John, of Third John, as we've seen here this morning, is written directly to believers, to folks like you and I. And in it, he describes what these duties and responsibilities are. And quite frankly, it is why we as brothers and sisters here at Ivy Creek believe in working alongside others who are like-minded in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we work alongside other Baptist churches, pooling our resources together 
so that we can do more together than we could by ourselves independently. It is why we support the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is why we give to mission offerings that support the work of missionaries overseas and those who are right here in North America. It is why we support individual missionaries and other gospel-centered organizations who are serving all over the globe and right here in our backyard. Our desire as a church is to engage in synergistic relationships that will advance the truth of the gospel and will bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And we do that as a corporate body. But brothers and sisters, let us not forget our individual responsibilities and duties as well. Each of us, like Gaius, are to play a role and a part in the furtherance of the gospel. And if you're here today, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then it may be that much of what I've said to you, in fact, all of what I've said to you, may make absolutely zero sense. Why in the world would anybody pay attention to any man who lived 2,000 years ago, who died and supposedly was a good fellow? Why would anybody care? Why would people voluntarily engage in service and in hospitality and in generosity to folks locally and around the world on the, for the sake and on behalf of a man who has already left this earth? Why would they do that? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you why. Because he changed our lives. We were on a road that was bound for death and destruction until Jesus Christ gifted us with His grace and with His mercy and stopped us in our tracks and lifted us up and forgave us of our sins and put us on the narrow road that will ultimately lead to eternal life. And He did not do it because there was anything good about me. He did not do it because of something that I had done. He did it simply because of how good He is. And because that's the case and because that is what draws us together and makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, that is why we we lock arms both together in this place but all around the world and while we do what we do so that we can lift the name of Christ to others and we can point them to Jesus who is the only one who can save them from their sins and here's the good news for you this morning if you've never trusted in him he offers that same grace and that same mercy to you this morning if you will repent of your sins believe in him trust in him he promises He will save you. That is the good news of the gospel that draws us together and unites us under the banner of Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.